digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is TJ2, the deuce. It's already opened. Yeah, did you already open it? <sighs> yeah, it's it's got a, it's a twist top. I didn't I didn't say the point. <laughs> Is it in a plastic jug? Uh, uh, oh, that would be I'll awesome. <laughs> All right, what are you drinking? Yeah, yes, I'm, yes, it's in a plastic dr- uh, jug. I'm drinking antifreeze. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just all reliable. It's just a Shinerbach. Okay, nice. Standard Shinerbach, not a just a, yeah, just standard standard issue Shinerbach. Yeah, they do a good job. Old reliable. Familiar, mm-hmm. refreshing, right. delicious. So, uh, our storyteller this week is Mr. Will the Thrill. Yes, twice in a row. How lucky are we? <laughs> that was a, a slight crack, if you heard that. I don't know if it came through. It sort of came like... through. Okay, you get the point. What are you drinking? Is that the, the thing that I found in the back of the refrigerator yesterday? <laughs> no, what was that? We still have to identify what that was. Red, Red Barn or something? Yeah, I got to go back there and figure that. But this is a, not the mysterious one in the fridge nor is it the mysterious liquor we have in our cupboard we'll get to that later this is a uh clearly canadian oh okay yeah so i've got feeling yep. non-alcoholic this time you mean because it's three o'clock on a sunday <laughs> i mean it is a sunday so i don't think anyone would you know get mad at me yeah fair enough yeah let's uh let's actually talk about that bottle of mysterious liquor oh yeah so um short version as we were clearing out our storage unit and next to us is a very nice couple older couple that we started talking to and the guy does everything like he's a clock maker is that right yeah he he makes clocks and so his entire storage unit which was right across from ours was full of just these beautiful ornate wooden clocks these were amazing yeah on one side but on the other side were just like these boxes that were closed up and so we just start talking and uh they are he he's been a clockmaker for something like 50 some odd years and he immigrated from Tel Aviv. Was that right? I, I want to say, but I don't know the exact exact city now. Yeah. So, uh, but there, but you know, he immigrated and started to build a little clock shop, and it was beautiful clocks. Yeah. So anyway, we just get to talking, and uh, he asks, "Will does he like to partake in adult beverages?" And I responded with a resounding yes. At which point he goes into the storage unit and comes out with a green bottle that's about the size of a beer bottle. Not labeled. No it's, label it's not labeled, yeah. And he's like, here. And I said, what is this? He's like, do you like vodka? And I'm like, well, it, sure. You know, and I, I didn't want to say no. I don't want to be rude at this point. Vodka is not my spirit of choice, but if someone is handing me something that's vodka, I'm not going to turn my nose up. And he said, oh, I make this too. And I'm like, huh. And it's all like corked. And again, it's an unlabeled bottle. He just kind of looks at me. He was like, are you scared? And I'm like, no, 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 of course not. Because I got to, you know, I can't. Even if I am, it doesn't matter. So I brought this bottle home and it's still in our cupboard. It's still unopened. So allegedly we have this mysterious vodka that I'll have to sample and perhaps do on air because it may make for an interesting story. Did he try to convince you to uh, carry a load of it to Texarkana or something? <laughs> Thankfully, no. Uh, this is okay. just enough for uh, legal distribution. But um yeah, so I, I will be partaking. I will not be selling it. So we'll see how it goes. Yeah, and it's going to be clean. You know why? Mm. Because it's duty free. Hey, oh! I know that we. I know. Speaking of putting weird things, speaking of putting weird things in your mouth, uh, I don't know if Will actually posted this on TikTok yet, but I went to a vape shop and purchased some chips that were horrific no that has not been posted and we looked at the numbers on the expiration label and none of them added up to anything good however you rearranged them it was not good so we'll i will post that because it was um an experience (laughs) all right well now that we're done with weird chips and booze tj how have you been good okay great so let's uh let's get this uh, episode rolling (laughs) all right should we start with our sponsor perhaps uh perhaps we should Thank I you. think that's a, a smashing idea. And our sponsor, of course, is BetterHelp because, let's face it, everyone can use a little help. No matter where you are in life, sometimes you just need to talk about something. 
We spend a lot of time focusing on things that we are convinced are the most important things. And they are, look, it's important to keep healthy, important to work on your career, important to take care of school and family. But really, let me ask you, when was the last time you focused on your mental health? Well, I know for me, it was way too long. Like most people, I was doing all these other things in life, but something was not right. The equation just wasn't balanced. And it just made me think that something was wrong. I needed to talk to somebody. I needed a professional. I needed that opinion. And we were in the midst of a global pandemic. So I found my way around to BetterHelp. And I am so glad that I did. BetterHelp does a lot of things that you can't get through conventional therapy. First of all, it will pair you up with a therapist to suit your needs. You answer a series of questions and you can be matched up with a professional therapist who will specify in the things that you need in just 48 hours. Yep, 48 hours. And plus, you don't have to go anywhere. It's all done from the comfort of your home. So you have to take time out of your day, drive, park, do all that stuff, sit in an office. None of that. You do it from your home and you speak with somebody who's attuned to talk about what is bothering you. I'm so glad I found better help and I'm sure you will be too. And that's why we're proud to have them sponsor our podcast and have a promo for our listeners. That's right. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy with betterhelp.com with our code, which is rock heaven. So again, when you go to betterhelp.com, they ask for code, enter rock heaven, and you can get 10% off your first month working with a professional therapist to suit your need. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast, helping me out. Better help, better life. Excellent. And uh, if you need that promo code again, it will be in our show notes. So who or what are we talking about today? We are coming back to the late, great Lane Staley, of course, known as the front man for Alice in Chains. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, not a lot known about him. He's almost a side character in the Alice in Chains stories, but he is definitely one of the most unique voices of the 1990s grunge movement. And what I put forth last week was the argument that, one, grunge wouldn't have happened without Alice in Chains may not have ever gotten out of Seattle. And two, the fact that this band game together at all is nothing shy of a miracle. It's really, again, one person shows up here, meets this person. Again, they turn in a different direction. They walk somewhere else. The band doesn't form. So we are going to jump back into that in the fall of 1985 is where we last left Lane Staley. All right. So fall. 1985. I'm sorry. I'm gonna. I'm already gonna interrupt you. Did you just do an all right like Sophia Nygaard? If I did, it was unintentional, but that would be pretty cool. <laughs> so if I had that same, all right, kind of cadence. Yes, thank you. Make Sophia sure Nygaard. to shamash that like button. <laughs> right. Well, now I think we're bordering on copyright infringement. So eject, Melvin. Eject. Yes, eject. Back to Lane. Fast. Fall 1985. As I mentioned, most people know grunge from the 90s, but really started in the early 80s, sort of fusing out of punk, metal, sort of came the scene out of Seattle uniquely. And when last we left off, Lane had met the man who would be his drummer, Sean Kinney. Sean Kinney, as we know, was dating Miranda Starr. Miranda Starr was the only one who had a phone. <laughs> this is an era before cell phones. So when Kinney and Lane met, he basically gave him a piece of paper saying, hey, I don't have a phone, but call my girlfriend. That's Miranda. How else is Miranda significant? Well, her brother. And that is, of course, Mike Starr. Mike Starr was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, April 4th, 1966. He was the son of John and Gail Starr. And as we all know, he has a sister, Miranda, who is three years younger than he is. When Mike was nine, John and Gail actually divorced and made their way to Seattle. And that's where Mike had his upbringing. At some point when he was very young, John actually purchased a bass for Mike. And Mike just started playing it 24-7 could not put it down, played throughout his younger years, teens. By the time he was 16, he actually formed his own band. And I'm going to see, TJ, if you know these guys, do you remember Sato? I've heard the name, but I'm, <laughs> I, 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 having heard the name is about all I can offer. They had a hit called Leather Warrior, if that, if that helps at all. Uh, they actually got into Ground Zero Records based out of Seattle, and they were featured on the Northwest Metal Fest album with other bands, which included Lipstick, Kodakon, Metal Church, Mace, and Open Fire. Mace actually had a guitar player, you may know, named David Hillis. Hillis would, of course, go on to be an audio engineer. He would make his living at London Bridge Studios, producing tracks for the likes of Pearl Jam, uh, Mother Love Bone, Alice in Chains, and produce the largely lauded grunge-centric soundtrack for the movie Singles, which those of you who know your Alice in Chains lore... That's going to be real important later. Star would form another band with a name. Oh, by the way, it's been a while since we've had bad band names. You guys are going to love this episode. We oh, have got a Go ton on. <laughs> of horrible band names. The first of which being Mike Starr's project, Gypsy Rose. Okay. Uh, 
Hold, hold it right there, Haas. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first time that I'm actually going to defend the name of a band. Okay. Because I feel like you have absolutely no con- context on two fronts when it comes to the name Gypsy Rose. I think I know where you're going with this, but go ahead. Uh, have you ever seen the Broadway show Gypsy? <laughs> yes, I have. Okay. Then uh, you should know that is a good band name because Fair. of all of the subtext. But then you have this true crime story about Gypsy Rose Lee. I'm pretty sure that's her name, where her mother had Munchausen's by proxy and then Gypsy actually killed her. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So also an interesting take on that name. So, you and know I, what? I was actually uh, like newsboy number three in Gypsy at the Chester Little Theater. <laughs> Did you have the cap, the little cap? Let me yes. tell you, DJ <laughs> on stage was great because he did the little extra, extra. He was doing the little dance and everything. It was so cute. I wish we had Let me entertain you. Let me just Let say, me if, you, if you had said, okay, guys, which one of the three of us actually made their musical debut first, TJ2 probably would have been the third one on that list. I the interesting thing yes. is, how it foreshadowed your future career i mean if you only knew right exactly accurate i'd be doing something else that i received almost no compensation for and um (laughs) (laughs) and every Uh, member every member of my family has done something with the chester little theater because i was in when i was like 14 i was in a production of the fantastics which should also right also uh my future career of just being a friggin weirdo (laughs) <laughs> um but mom used to do the choreography and dad used to direct that's right yes my, my but, dad um, directed noises off so but gypsy rose was also later a song by cinderella wasn't it yeah so gypsy I'm road gonna, gypsy road that was gypsy road okay gypsy road, take either me either way i'm gonna defend this band name okay fair so we'll give we'll give that one a pass so gypsy rose will get a pass fair fair all right there's gonna be some worse ones i promise you <laughs> So Star forms Gypsy Rose in the mid-80s. He teams up with a singer named Tim Branneman and someone else at the Music Bank. And again, I know I'm teasing on this one. TJ, you know who this this final member is, but I got to build up because I think they deserve it. So now we'll get back to Lane Staley. So Lane is pretty much homeless in the winter of 1985. As we all know, he showed up at the Music Bank, said, I'm going to work here. He's unofficially going to live there. And again, the guy who ran it basically never questioned it, and Lane never left. So there you go. He's essentially living out of the music bank. He was also in the band Sleaze, which you've all decided is a poor band name. Can we agree on that one? Yeah. 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 It's pretty bad. And they lived up to their reputation. Lots of partying. And this is about the time when folks suspect, now I have to say suspect because the evidence is quite murky, that Lane started experimenting more with drugs. We know that he did marijuana. We know that he had taken acid and hallucinogenics. It's thought that at this point, things like cocaine are starting to creep into the picture. But again, different accounts do vary. And this was actually brought to the attention of Lane's parents and his fellow bandmates. Now, if we remember, Nancy was raised Christian science. Nancy is Lane's mother. So the Elmer household was Christian science household. So they couldn't have any drugs. Do any of you know any Christian scientists? I mean, they don't even have aspirin. No, but I know yeah. that my my husband refuses to take anything. So does that... I, I am not a Christian scientist. I will say that. But I, I'm very hesitant to take any prescription drugs. That is entirely the case. I would prefer something more natural if available. Bottom line is the Elmer household is a no drugs household. So... Jim Elmer actually goes to Lane and says, look, <laughs> yet, yet he's going to drink sketchy vodka that some dude <laughs> Perhaps there is a double standard here. I'll figure out what it is. <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. But yeah, that aspirin, no way. So Jim basically goes to Lane and says, no drugs in the house. You got two little sisters here. So Lane basically says, okay, I get it. You know, he's like, you can't have this. I'm the problem. I'll leave. So that makes him ostensibly homeless living out of the music bank. So he would stay with friends, kind of couch surf. Um, make his way around to different people's houses. But for the most part, he's living out of his recording space in the music bank, where apparently there was a dead rat in one of the drum sets. So that should give you an idea of what kind of accommodations he was. God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, These days, Lane and the Sleaze co-founder, James Bergstrom, had actually heard of this place, the music bank. So how they get there is this is how this whole thing kind of comes together. The music space, music bank was a really unique space. And it was really dedicated towards nothing but 24-7 recording facilities in Seattle. And it would play host later to a number of bands, 
that we've discussed before, including Mother Love Bone and Pearl Jam. And so it was really the epicenter of grunge music. It was started in 1984 by a gentleman named Scott Hunt, who was actually a former college athlete. He had a full ride scholarship and surprised everybody by getting out of school and saying, you know what, I'm going to go to Seattle and I'm going to play in a band. So nobody sees this coming. While he's doing this, he's actually working construction to bring in some money. So Hunt learns about this warehouse space sitting in Ballard, Washington, which, those of you who may not be familiar with Ballard, is a waterfront neighborhood on the northwestern kind of corner of Seattle, right near, uh, right near the water there. So he has this idea. He's like, I'm going to create a space where you can do nothing but make music 24-7. So he drains his bank account, goes all in on this place in the September of 1984 with business partners Jake Bostiak and Von Hartman. And over the next year, he turns this big open warehouse space into a 24-7, 52-room recording studio. 53, if you count the closet that Lane used to live in and play music in, they actually gave him a closet that all their gear went into for sleaze and Lane was sleeping in. So apparently, like I said, Lane went to the door, approached Hunt and said, I want a job. They need someone to clean up. And like I said, it was sort of an unofficial agreement. So Lane takes over the space and Johnny Arcolis of Sleaze described it as barely able to fit a drum set, let alone four people. But the good news is Lane was an employee, so they could use the space. He could do some basic tasks around the bank and, you know, basically have a place to stay. The bank also gave Sleaze the room to work on a demo in 1986. So they worked for about three months and they sort of fine-tune a few tracks that they've been working on in concerts and whatnot. Some of those included Fat Girls, yeah, I know, classy, Over the Edge, and Lip Lock Rock. I had to slow that one down to say it. Sleaze also brought in Tim Brenneman, as I remember. Tim was actually fronting a band with Mike Starr to help them produce the demo at the Music Bank. And Brenneman was, of course, a singer. So he was actually studying with a well-known vocal coach, which maybe you've heard of, by the name of David Kyle. Any takers? I only know no. Selena Kyle. You're going to know who he worked with. And TJ, this is where I think your mind's about to get blown up. His nickname was The Maestro. Kyle would go on to have a 50-year career in the Seattle music scene. He trains, of course, Lane Staley. A little bit of a spoiler alert there. But also Chris Cornell, Jeff Tate, and Ann Wilson. <laughs> okay yeah i mean kind of a weird grab bag but really cool um anybody we've heard of or any note yeah sorry nobody nobody on this holy list. crap and wilson and jeff tate and jeff tate in fact the legend has it that uh david kyle showed lane a picture of jeff tate and said this is going to be you so he had heard something through these recordings that Brandon had shared with him and if said, you had only trained, if you had only trained one of those, <laughs> right? then your, your, your reputation is cemented pretty much forever. I mean, I, I was like, so Hart, Queen Drake, Soundgarden, and uh, Alice in Chains. You, yep. you uh, trained the vocalist for all of those bands, all of which completely kick ass and are awesome. Yeah. Okay. Pick yeah, pick one and you're already a legend. I mean, it's crazy. So Lane, of course, is completely broke living out of the music bank. He can't afford to pay for David Kyle. So what Brandon would do was actually record the vocal lessons, take them to the music bank, and Lane would basically play them back and practice with them. So that was sort of the ongoing way that they had to train him as a singer. Now, Lane was really interesting because he appeared very sure of himself on stage, but deep down he was very self-conscious. In fact, while he was recording at London Bridge Studio and at the music bank, Lane would actually go into spaces where he was convinced no one would hear him. And he would like turn out the lights, close the door and work in what he thought would be complete isolation. That's something that's actually going to continue through the whole of his career. He really, really didn't want to know that people were watching him, which is strange because on stage, he's absolutely electric. By August of 1986, Sleaze completes their demo. And one month later, they are approached by a local filmmaker named Thad Bird. Thad was actually putting together a feature film called Father Rock. In many ways, it would be sort of the practice for the kind of music videos that Alice in Chains would make later in their career. It is, however, said that this appearance in Father Rock is the first appearance of Lane Staley on film. He even had a few lines of dialogue. So instead of being just a musical act, he was somewhat an actor too. As this goes on, he continues to be essentially bouncing from couch to couch, staying at the music bank. 
if he had a girlfriend at the time, he would stay with her. And he did all kinds of sort of menial jobs. You know, he was working, he would work in fast food. He took on factory work. He, you know, would do various things to kind of bring in some extra money. All the while, Sleaze is playing local gigs. And the lineup outside of Lane, Nick Pollock, and Johnny Barcolis is constantly in flux. So the band is not exactly what I'd call stable. Now, we all know that Lane was a creative person when he was growing up. And one of the things that actually endeared him to Sleaze was the fact that he came in, quote, looking the part. They what, were a, great... what a weird, what a weird sentence you just said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's a very strange one. So basically, Lane had to officially audition for Sleaze, as we know. So he comes in with his hair dyed pink. So he's got like a short pink hair. And he actually wrote the names of his favorite bands on his jeans in bleach, which included Ozzy Osbourne and Motley Crue. And so they instantly thought they had a connection over that. Okay, that's just awesome. I know. It's pretty cool. Like, who would have known it was so arts and craftsy? Well, he continues to be arts and craftsy. That's the thing is Lane was actually at the forefront of creating little badges and designs for their passes that they would use for when they would have shows. So file that one away because it's actually going to be important later and this was actually key in rebranding the band sleaze which would start of course by changing their name i do want to take a quick break though to introduce you to a song you may not know this one comes from that film that i mentioned 1986 the film is father rock directed by thad bird the song that i've selected to share with you today is by what would eventually become alice in chains and it actually appears on their later demos it was written by the band Sleaze, and it is called Over the Edge. back it's funny they they do a, like a 30 second fade out and then just cut it off yep <laughs> and then that's it <laughs> like we're done all right so any thoughts we'll start with very, LD and then, oh tj and then go LD. well no i was just gonna say very product of its time sounding like mm. that sounds like kind of a rap or motley crew b-side sort of doesn't sound anything like alice yeah not yet no not yet ld i i've yeah, it, it could only exist in the time that it was created. Like, mm. you couldn't put that out now and have it be a hit. But you can definitely hear some influences said with a question mark. Yeah, you can hear, like, the punk roots, I think. Those are the most prominent. 
Yes. But you can also hear Lane vocally. He can really, he can go up, he can go down. He's got, he's got range. You can tell that much. Right? Yeah. The, no, the vocals, the vocals, the vocals were good. There was just the, some of the harmonies and the, the guitar and stuff. It sounds very 1986. <laughs> yes. Like you said, product of its time. Yeah. Very like rat Motley Crue. Yeah, absolutely. So as you can hear, we're getting to Alice in Chains. The band known as Sleaze will sort of morph into Alice in Chains. It's going to take some, some time. It's going to take some lineup changes and, of course, a name change. There is still some debate over how they got their name Alice in Chains. So I'll tell you what I've uncovered, and I know there's some different things out there. There's a theory that it was actually a reference to an older lady who lived next to the band when they eventually all moved in together apparently you had these four guys living in a rundown house with faulty indoor plumbing and a porta john out back and allegedly this old lady named alice lived next door and she would kind of come by and check on them just to make sure they were okay and in turn they would go to her house and say hey you know we're going to be playing hope we don't bother you so it was a largely amicable relationship so some things some believe that that's how they named the band was for this lady alice However, there is a more accepted theory that it actually came from a backstage pass that Lane designed. As we mentioned, he was a little bit crafty, and he actually created a pass for the band Sleaze that said, Welcome to Wonderland. Now, one of the members of Sleaze, Johnny Bacolis, was actually talking about this at a party with the singer of another local band. His name was Russ Klatt, and he was actually fronting a band called Slaughterhouse Five at the time, spelled differently from the Vonnegut novel. Alice in Wonderland, according to Klatt, he thought it could be changed to Alice in Bondage. And then that actually changed into Alice in Chains. Here's where the name gets, I think, appropriately scrutinized. People disagreed right away. In fact, Nancy Lane's mother was one of the most outspoken people against the name because she thought that that depiction of a woman in bondage was not appropriate and would actually deter female fans. And... You know, it's my understanding that to this day, that connotation still holds that some people don't want to hear the music because of the name of the band. So take that for, for what it's worth. So they thought they could soften it a little bit. And to do that, Lane and Johnny actually took a note from another band who, one year prior, had dropped a pretty big album called Appetite for Destruction. So 1987 was, of course, guns and roses so the original thought was let's just make it an n not in so they briefly changed the name to alice in chains and then i will offer in on the heels of that a fun fact fun fact, fun fact. <laughs> in chorus i like it so before gnr had actually released appetite for destruction i think tj you and i have gone at length about is a near perfect album i'm gonna say basically yeah yeah it's it's amazing that Guns N' Roses were actually shopping the demo around and it came to the music bank. And a lot of people were listening to the demo going, you know, who are these guys? And many people didn't like it, but Lane was actually a fan of theirs. And he said, hey, I, I kind of like this. Uh, this could be good. So I'm not saying Lane launched Guns N' Roses, but he did listen to the demo and it worked out pretty well. So maybe it just means he had good taste. Don't know. That's a little fun fact for you. Sleaze started the recording of their demo in 1986. Well, it wouldn't be completed until early in 1987. The band completed 100 copies of their demo, and the cost was around $2,000, which those of you getting the conversion calculator out will see that it is roughly $5,000 today. When the demo was released, it was under the name Sleaze, but, Alice, but the band was using Alice in Chains informally, as in when they did shows, and it's not entirely clear when that happened. Um, they just were using the name, but the name on the demo was Sleaze. So it's going to get a little confusing for a while here. And of course, they were, as we pointed out, very much a product of their time, you know, sort of that punk glam rock, almost like Poison-esque. Uh, and they totally steered into this. So the band would often appear on stage in the spandex, the teased out hair, scarves, makeup. They would even go as far as to, on some occasions, go all out and drag. So they would take the stage dressed completely as women. Uh, the band's first merchandise was created by Lane, as we said, but also by one of Bacolis' friends, Jeff Gilbert. Jeff actually had a day job at Silver Screen Graphics, where they produced that year what are considered the first known Alice in Chains shirts with the band name on it. 
Now, despite the fact that this is sort of swelling and starting to grow, Lane is still homeless. And upper management had actually kicked Scott Hunt out of the deal. So he's kind of on the sidelines right now. They brought in a new manager named Dave Bollinger. And again, they just kind of accepted the fact that Lane was there. He's going to live here. He's going to work here. They were fine with it. And life at the Music Bank was, of course, fun. You know, a lot of musicians came in. They got demos. There were also a lot of drugs. So it was known that weed was there, acid was there, and cocaine was, quote, rampant at the bank during this point. And although we can't specify, we can largely believe that by accounts made by Bollinger and Tim Branneman, that Lane was perhaps using those drugs at this time. And this may have also been the point where heroin started to come into the picture. Maybe. Again, the origins of Lane's usage of that drug is not particularly known, but it's largely thought to be around this point, 1986-1987 at the Music Bank. Hey, Will, sorry to cut in on you, but we do need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And we're back. All right, let's get back to the life of Lane Staley. One of the guitarists for a fellow band, it was a band called, here we go, Triathlon. Ugh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my sentiments. Triathlon. Uh, actually went out to sort of defend Lane, saying that Lane was actually quite outspoken against heroin at that time. They thought he was using things like cocaine and psychedelics, but, you know, he was mostly sticking to the, quote, artistic drugs. So according to him, heroin wasn't a thing yet. Uh, The man had quite the constitution for drugs, is what Lane's bandmate Tim Pollock would say. This actually led the band to host an intervention with Lane at a local pizza parlor in 1987, where they all said, dude, we love you. We don't want to see you doing this. Just we, we do, you're going to ruin your life. And the, the, actual, the actual quote is, we don't want to see you get involved in that and ruin your life, affecting all of your great talent. So apparently Lane broke down. He cried. He said, OK, I'll, I'll stop. And they kind of got back to work. So I'm going to share another song with you by the early iterations of Alice in Chains. This one actually comes from a very fateful show at the Tacoma Little Theater in Tacoma, Washington. This comes from 1987. It does appear on Alice in Chains' earliest demos. The title of this one is Glamorous Girls.
back, and that was awful. Not your thing, is it, LD? Not, not my thing at all. No, it was the other one was totally fine. Like okay. that one was okay. I guess this one sounds like a hot mess. <laughs> uh, the only thing I will say is Lane's voice sounds a little closer to what it becomes with Alice. Mm. More more so than in the first song when it yeah. kind of didn't it didn't really sound like him so much. That those the the tone of his voice sounded more like what you're familiar with. Yeah. But it's come, yeah, coming into his own. Kind of a little, little all over the place, but real light, real, real bass heavy. It almost reminded me of like Guns N' Roses almost. The it, guitar lines do. The, I mean, the, that was the good part of the song was the guitar break. Um, mm. at the, the lyrics were terrible. The actual demo mix was awful. I was just bad. Sorry. I mean, I know there are some really diehard Alice in Chains fans out there, uh, but I liked the first one. The second one, not so much. Well, TJ said it best, you know, they don't sound like Alice yet. You know, there's something that's still missing. And that's why this show at the Tacoma Little Theater is so impactful. Normally, wouldn't make a big deal out of this. It's one concert. It was May 1st, 1987. But it was a game changer because in that audience, there was a guitar player who had wanted to see Lane and wanted to work with him. And of course, finally, TJ, that guitar player is Jerry Cantrell. So, yep. and, that, and that, I mean, if you want to talk about what makes Alice in Chains, Alice in Chains, if you're going to say, you know, Lane and Jerry are basically the heart and soul, who's what, it doesn't really matter. But I think the two of them in combination are critical to that sound. They're, they're, they're kind of the Lennon McCartney or the Mick and Keith or, or whatever, you, however you want to label it. Absolutely. And, and this was the one LD I said, I think you're going to like Jerry. So we'll learn a little bit about Jerry and see how he ties into the big picture here. Uh, you can't talk about them without mentioning Jerry Cantrell. Like I said, you said Lennon McCartney, great example. You know, they they really are the two pieces that held up the band. Uh, Jerry Cantrell is largely considered one of the best guitar players of all time. In fact, on most lists, he's somewhere around 36 or 37, which is no shabby feat of all time. And I will offer you a fun fact. Fun fact. Fun fact. So in guitar playing in general, Jerry is considered one of the best. He's also considered one of the best in the grunge era, period. He was asked in an interview, who is your top pick, like contemporary, for best guitar player of that era? Any wager on who he picked? Slash. Okay, LD, you say Slash? DJ? Negative. The answer, Kim Thayel of Soundgarden. Wow. Okay. okay. Yep. Jerry says Kim was the best guitar player of the grunge era. Um, and Kim's fantastic. So I can't really argue that. I would I would pick Jerry personally, but that's just me. Um, he deserves accolades as a guitar player, but let's not forget what made him so critical in Alice in Chains. And TJ, this is something you and I have talked about too. He was a vocalist and mm-hmm. a very good one. A very good one. In the same way that, um, let's just say, um, Michael Anthony's background and harmony vocals are are just like signature part of like van halen sound yeah their two voices blending is alice's sound that's one of the things that makes them different from almost everybody else a hundred percent and the thing that he did that was so great was he elevated lane lane was fine but he elevated him so it's almost by doing his best he almost disappears a little bit you know, sort of fades into the backdrop. So talk about Jerry. Jerry Fulton Cantrell Jr. He is a junior, was born on March 18th of 1966. He was the son of Gloria Cantrell and Jerry Fulton Cantrell Sr. Jerry was born in Tacoma and spent most of his formative years in Spanaway, Washington. Spanaway is actually near a very affluent area in, you know, that part of Washington called Parkland. But where Jerry lived was largely considered to be the the wrong side of the track. So he grew up in sort of the less affluent area. He was clearly lower middle class. His mother was a big proponent of music and would definitely reinforce Jerry's love for music. In fact, Jerry owned a book. Maybe you guys know this book. Do you remember the Dr. Seuss book, My Book About Me? No, I, I can't read. TJ? I don't think I don't think I remember that one. No. It, it was it was a children's book and it was basically a book that you yourself would fill in. So you fill in your name at the start and you'd go through each thing and it would say, you know, where do you want to live? And you'd go, oh, in the city. Uh, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And apparently when Jerry was 
maybe four or five years old when it put i where it says when i grow up i want to be he wrote rock star in this book <laughs> so at the age of four jerry was pretty sure where he was going to go in fact it's really funny because later in their career a journalist would cover one of their earlier shows would call them rock stars and sean kinney's response was we're, we can't be rock stars we're in seattle which is just funny in and of itself um, back to Jerry. Jerry's father was actually a Vietnam War veteran, and he had seen combat. So he suffered from PTSD and a lot of psychological scars surrounding the Vietnam War that would ultimately lead to the end of the marriage between him and Gloria. And this happened when Jerry was just about seven years old. Still, Jerry Sr. was very supportive of his son and, in fact, encouraged his love of music. In fact, one of the first albums he ever gave Lane, LD, you'll like this one, was... Elton John's Captain Fantastic. Oh my gosh. Yep. Yes. And and I'm super excited because uh I don't even think T knows this yet, but we got our tickets to Elton John's final concert. We did. Her. Cool. We snuck in, yep. Yes. So it's a my birthday present. <laughs> but if you remember correctly, the first concert Lane ever went to was Elton John. So they already have a link up there in sort of their musical roots here. Captain Fantastic was released, of course, in 1975. Elton's first studio album came out a number of years earlier, I think in 1969. And up, reading up to that point before he had really struck gold, from the early 60s to the mid-60s, he was releasing singles to get his name out there on a label called Philips Records based in Amsterdam. Well, I can say with pride that that same label, Philips Records, produced... The glorified album in 1972 by Manfred Band's Earth Band. Again, after our interview with Leslie, it just seems. Hang on. Travis is having a moment. Yes, I got to let him play that out. After the interview with Leslie, it feels weak, but I had to write it in there. I had to get our reference in there. I know. And she's just straight up like, yep. I know yeah. him and he's one of my best friends. I was like, I know. well, we're done here. <laughs> I can't top it. Sorry, Leslie. Can't do better than that. But at least we can check the box of who wants to do it, by the way. I'll do the honors. Oh, TJ. Thank you. Sure. Hold on. Wait a minute. Hold on. I'm going to fancy sound effects. Ready? Ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Man's Earth Band, reference to the podcast, has been satisfied. Through a tin can phone, apparently. <laughs> what? Did, did you? Yeah. Did you? <laughs> Strain two awesome. tin cans together and then just telegraphed it to us. Yeah, I put my phone down at the bottom of a cup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, thank you for that. <sighs> so, okay, back to real, real talk now. So, as I mentioned, Jerry's parents split up. He's only about seven years old. He continues to live with his mother and his grandmother, Dorothy, and with him come his two sisters. So they were sensibly broke. They had nothing. Uh, Jerry accounts that they lived largely off of food stamps. They were basically a welfare family and they were moving constantly. They spent time in Texas, Pennsylvania, finally get back to Washington. When Jerry is in the sixth grade, he starts playing in the local school band. He played the clarinet first. So that was his first instrument. One of his mother's boyfriends at the time actually was a guitar player. And so he'd bring the guitar over and kind of strum it and he would let Jerry play. And Jerry took to it very quickly. And so after a little while, they suggested that they buy Jerry a guitar. Now, Jerry had said, of course, they were completely broke. So he would actually play music with his friends in the streets. They would sort of do a, a stomp thing by building, you know, milk cans and buckets. And he said, you know, we didn't have instruments. We played on milk cartons, buckets and stuff, and we made it our own. However, Jerry did finally get his first acoustic guitar that his mother scraped together money for to purchase for him. So he can now play his own guitar at home I, I don't know why but those stories always hit me the hardest where I'm just like yeah. you know she she probably worked extra shifts to like get him a guitar mm -hmm. and years later he would make it like I don't know why but that just that just hits me in the feels yeah I mean he, he will become one of and I think TJ you agree one of the best guitar players of all time sure. one of easily by 1982 they were back in Washington and he was actually attending a local high school. One of Jerry's teachers, a young lady named Joanne Becker, knew that Jerry was interested in music and suggested he join the boys' choir. So Jerry becomes a singer at this point, and he actually would start experimenting with different harmonies. Now, one of the things this particular group was known for was religious music. And actually, this is where Jerry really credits the sound of Alice in Chains coming into play, because they would do a cappella Gregorian chants. 
And Jerry would say those harmonies reminded him of, quote, scary church music, end quote. So a lot of the harmonies you get with Alice were actually rooted in these old Gregorian chants that the group would perform. Another big influence, TJ, you'll love this one, was, of course, the great Eddie Van Halen. Jerry was absolutely blown away when he first discovered the concept of drop D tuning. Are both of you familiar with this? No. I don't no not really basically the top the low string on a guitar is an e normally you detune it you tune it down to a d so you, okay. you have a lower that, a lower string there a lot of people that is still who, some who, weird magic that's just yeah, but still weird people magic. who would people who would get to play like eddie's rig often would say they couldn't play it <laughs> because he tuned like i think most of the strings down because he pressed them so hard mm-hmm. um yeah, a lot of people have, I mean, and I mean, good, I mean, really good guitar players who would actually get to play Eddie's, like who would get to play the Frankenstrat or, or whatever would be like, I, I, I can, can't do anything with this. Yeah, I can't, just <laughs> I, can't do it. That was uh, where Jerry says he really came into the drop D tuning, which is actually a key in Alice in Chains that that deep kind of crunchy guitar comes from that drop D tuning. And Jerry cites it from the song Unchained from 1981's Fair Warning album. Oh, good one. Yep. So is a you, good one. You want more on Eddie? Ow, we, we I have, have a whole series for day. you. <laughs> we got a whole series for you, uh, hosted by TJ2. Great series. If you want to check that out, little tie in there to Eddie Van Halen. So by the time Jerry is a senior in high school, he actually becomes the president of the choir. And he starts, he and the choir actually start winning local competitions. And it's around this time where Jerry actually trades out an acoustic guitar for an electric guitar. And he is at this point completely self-taught. Again, Jerry's just learning at home, playing on his own. He graduates high school, 1984, and he joins a band called Raze, R-A-Z-E. So take that. Not not as bad as some, not as good as some. It's kind of middling. I think triathlon is so far the worst, but there's one coming up I know you guys are going to groan at. So we'll, we'll get there. So he joins Raze in 1984, and he actually moves back to Tacoma, where he links up with a drummer named Bobby Nesbitt and a singer named Scott Nutter. And that band, which was originally named Phoenix, brings on Jerry as a guitar player, and they change their name to Diamond Lie. Ugh. That that yeah, doesn't even bad. make sense. Like no. that that's that that is nonsensical. Yes, that, Di- I'm I'm actually angry at this one. <laughs> Diamond like the gem and lie like to tell a lie. That's the band, Diamond Lie. So they're playing out. They develop kind of a local, you know, club following. They're playing the metal clubs, the bars, getting gigs here and there, and they start cutting a demo. And Jerry was known for just kind of being cool in general. So one example actually comes from his fellow bandmates. There was one time in the summer when they were playing out, and a lot of his bandmates would wear black leather. Jerry actually comes out just before the show wearing all white leather, completely white leather. And they turn to them and they go, Man, it's hot. Are you uncomfortable? Jerry's response is, Yeah but I look good in this. So <laughs> a little bit of insight into Jerry's personality. Can't, can't deny that. Uh, but despite all the swagger and the talent, Jerry's world is about to get completely turned upside down. In October of 1986, Jerry would lose his grandmother to cancer. And as remember, she basically raised him alongside his mother. Mere months after his grandmother passes, he learns that his own mother, Gloria, has advanced pancreatic cancer and was given six months to live. Jeez. She she barely lives that long. This oh, is the wow. point where Jerry says things got infinitely worse in the family. He and his two sisters were fighting. Jerry says that he was actually kicked out of the house before his mother passed away, which happened in the spring of 1987. He would lose his mother. So within, I'd say, five months, he loses the two influential women of his life and his sisters kick him out and he's homeless. So he's kind of bumming around Seattle. He had seen a few shows with Sleaze. He found out they were playing the Little Tacoma Theater, so off he goes. At that point, uh, his bandmates really can tell there's a change in Jerry. They said something completely changed in him. It was more, his work was described as being more realistic. That's when his whole look on everything changed. And Jerry just fell into a deep depression. He really stopped playing music. He stopped writing. Uh, His last show with Diamond Lie took place in a competition against Slaughterhouse Five, which you remember was the band where the lead singer came up allegedly with the name Alice in Chains. Even though Diamond Lie actually won the contest, they were gifted a cash prize. Jerry just couldn't do it. So the band basically called it quits. So he was looking for a new gig and it just so happens he went to a party with Tim Branneman. And at that time, Tim was, as I said, Jerry is homeless at the time. 
Brandeman had actually heard some of Jerry's work on previous demos and invited him to audition for his band, Gypsy Rose. While Jerry was very talented, his stay with Gypsy Rose wasn't very long, but it did introduce him to Mike Starr. And as we all know, Mike Starr is now playing that show at the Tacoma Little Theater. So after the show, they invite him to a party, at which point they're just making introductions. And one of the bandmates, Nick, pulls him over and goes, oh, I want to introduce you guys. Lane, this is Jerry. Jerry, this is Lane. So that's the beginning of all of it. They meet at a party. According to Lane, he said, I met Jerry out of the blue. He had no family in the area and he was kind of struggling. He didn't have any money or a place to stay. And me being completely drunk, I just offered a place to stay and food and some musical instruments. Two days later, Jerry moved into the music bank with Lane. And as we all know, they would become bandmates for the rest of you know, Lane's life, of course. And they were very close friends. In fact, later that year, Lane invited Jerry to, to spend Christmas with his family, the Elmers in Seattle, because Jerry had nowhere to go. Uh, and Jim Elmer would go on to say, you could tell these guys were buddies. Jerry was very respectful. He was always pleasant. It was clear that he was liked. He really enjoyed being there. So as we round out this episode, I just want you to think about all the steps we've taken to get to this point. Again, it's people bumping into each other at concerts, Jerry basically getting kicked out of his house, Lane living at the music bank, which is a whole turmoil we'll get into in the next episode. And now we finally have our four key players. We have Sean Kinney, we have Mike Starr, we have Lane Staley, and of course we have Jerry Cantrell. So they're all at least in the same ecosystem at this point. But there is one more player we still have to introduce. It's not someone in the band, but she is someone who's very well known and would largely be considered the love of Lane's life. But dear listeners, I'm going to save that for the next episode. So before we do our final song and sign off here, just like to get some thoughts from you two, LD and TJ. Do you want me to go first, TJ? Sure. Uh, my basic thought is you're just seeing the, the nexus. You're seeing the beginning. It's not there yet, but it will be. And it's really sad that we're this early on and drugs have been already introduced. Yeah, yeah, that's going to continue. And that's, that's that, I mean, I don't have, okay. So for the folks out there, I don't know Allison Chains that well. So I'm kind of like any new listener who's like, what is this? So all of this stuff that I'm finding out is new to me. And it's kind of like my episodes on Soundgarden. And mm. I'm just kind of learning things and I'm appreciating things. So, you know, bear with me if I don't have a fully fleshed out idea of Allison Change yet, because pretty much I think I know three songs by them. But remember, mm. when they were when they were coming up, you were in that scene. I was listening to pop. I was listening to Broadway musicals and I was listening to my mom yelling at me. So and she listened, didn't don't let her lie. And she was listening to Billy Ray Cyrus. What <laughs> up, TJ? Yep. She had she wore some gave all out and got had to get a second cop. <laughs> Let's just be honest with the people. Come on. Jesus. Okay. What are your thoughts, T? <laughs> <laughs> LD loved Billy Ray Cyrus. That's, that's the episode, everyone. Yeah. No. Um I'm gonna find you and kill you. You know, it's it's um I mean, this it's this is pretty dark so far. Um you know, Jerry losing his mother and grandmother and he and Lane both basically being homeless and crashing at a place and, and having to work odd jobs when they can find them and they're broke and hungry. And But, you know, that's the that's the fuel a lot of times for, for really great creative fire. Yeah. And we know that that's certainly coming. And as far as the music we heard, the first one was very uh, hair bandish sounding, very crew, very rap to me. Uh, those are the two that popped in my head. Second one, uh, you know, I can you can definitely hear uh, Lane's voice is closer to what you know. Um, if you're not familiar with this back, you know, this older stuff, if you just know his stuff with Alice. Um, but the the sound isn't fully formed yet. But uh, we're, now that the key piece, another key piece, the last key piece has been added. It's we're, we're on the way. So I'm excited to see what comes next. Yeah, absolutely. And it does explain why it is the way it is. Like you said, without all of those present, you're not going to have that unique sound that made him so interesting. And it's, it is setting the scene. You know, we are still setting the scene. And there is one more key character who, while she's not a member of the band, she's very important in Lane's life. And, and you know, a lot of things will come out of that in the in but, future episodes. But this, this existence that they're leading is going to bleed into the music tremendously. Mm -hmm. To me, they were the, you know, grunge in general was seen as very a little on the bleak side and kind of dark to me alice was always the bleakest and the darkest and maybe and i and i think actually probably the best of the bunch but um mm. we'll get there later but yeah this if, everything they're dealing with now it comes out in the music in the very near future absolutely 
Absolutely. And uh, yeah, when we close out the episode, final song, I don't, I think we got to do some ID and stuff and some business LD, but after that, I'll, I'll give you a taste of, of what's to come. So now, you know, okay, that's where we're going. So we'll close okay. out that in a minute. <laughs> All right. So uh, if you think that we're doing a good job and you want to throw a coin to your witcher, you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. You can check out our Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven LT. Facebook, Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Follow us over there. We're just having a good time. We post about uh, non-death stuff occasionally. And, uh, you know, we like to connect with folks over there. And then occasionally my brother will just throw up a picture of his barbecue. Yeah. So follow us there. Uh, still not saying our website. You can check us out on TikTok where we throw up a fun facts and little life updates and all that good stuff over there. So follow us there because if I think if we get a thousand followers on TikTok, we can do uh, lives. And I really kind of want to do that. So please make sure to follow us on TikTok at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. That's all one word. And you can email us at rock and roll heaven LT at gmail.com. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. Okay. TJ, would you like to say anything to the audience? Bye, buddy. <laughs> Great. And to that, I will also say thank you guys so much for checking out this episode. Please make sure to check us out on the next episode where we pick up part three of Lane Staley of Allison Chains. And I'm going to hand it over to Mr. Will Thrill so he can close it out for you. I will. And I'll start by reminding everyone, I have not forgotten about the homework that I assigned you all in episode one. And uh, as we are now getting into the meat of it, we are seeing more of an episodic arc to this series. Remember, by the end, we will discuss... Top five Alice in Chains albums. Again, they can be any album with or without Lane. Uh, Unplugged is for, is acceptable as well. And if you want to do the post-Lane era, that's fine with William Duvall. Either so I'm, top- I'm, I'm going to tell you I, this is either going to be like a Google the day before or I'm just going to fail it completely. Eh, at least you're honest. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> and then, of course, set list from hell. We've got the big four, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Nirvana together again four songs by each artist four songs from spin-off acts which of course include solo acts by any of the aforementioned band members you got jerry's solo you got chris solo you've got uh, of course dave grohl going with the foo fighters so any spin-offs and then a four song encore that is another set list from hell at the end but to close out i figured i'd give you a little taste of what's in the Alice in Chains future. And I think it's the Alice in Chains we know and love. So I figured I'd close out with a song originally released as an EP in 1990. It would make their debut album Facelift, but this was released just prior as a single. This one comes to us. And I think it's very indicative of the overall Alice sound as we close out today's episode. Let's finish it off with We Die Young.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.